Hey Liberators, welcome to the Buyer-Centric Revenue Model Podcast. This is going to be a mishmash of audio content. LinkedIn content, guest podcasts, interviews, debates, and live Q&A. We'll primarily discuss how you can liberate yourself from the outdated and harmful sales-led growth model from the 1980s and instead achieve marketing-led growth via the buyer-centric revenue model. Enjoy profit, growth, a competitive advantage, and more productive and fulfilling careers. Topics include 1. Marketing versus sales development. 2. Real sales versus sales assembly line. 3. Real goals and metrics versus MQLs and quota. 4. Full salary plus bonus versus commission. If you haven't already, I highly demand that you sign up for the Buyer-Centric Revenue Model Slack community to discuss and implement the model. Join the movement of forward-thinking peers liberating and modernizing B2B marketing and sales. Enjoy insights, resources, and jobs. Plus, live Q&A on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Head over to buyercentricrevenue.com to sign up. If you want to learn more, check out my LinkedIn videos or my book, Marketing-Led Growth via the Buyer-Centric Revenue Model, available on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and audiobook. And now to this episode. Hey everyone, in this episode, we've got Dan Fister, the founder and CMO at Winback Labs, a consultancy which helps companies win back lost customers. A really awesome marketing play, and we'll definitely get into that at the end. Um, he is the host of the show, the Winback Marketing Podcast, and he has been a marketer for over 20 years. Um, and of all the different marketing tactics and plays, guess which one he likes the most? It is <laughs> win back campaigns. And so that's his holy grail. We'll definitely dig into that. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Nelson. Awesome. So let's dive right in. Let's stick you into the B2B buyers flip-flops. And how do you first like to become aware of vendors? How do you first like to hear about vendors? Who do you hear them from? Where do you hear them from? Which channels or platforms, for example, your peers and influencers, word of mouth, your you know, communities, content, social like LinkedIn, um, and leave aside for the moment how you like to do research and learn about vendors once you become aware of them. This is really the initial sure. awareness stage. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, first off, it's peers. Those are the people I trust the most. Um, I know, I know what they know. I understand what their uh, biases are, what their, uh, you know, how they how they look at things. You know, um, uh, influencers. There's a lot of really excellent influencers out there. They're second. Um, there's a lot of just amazing people on LinkedIn that I found over the last couple of years, uh, whose uh, opinions I really respect. Um, I like to do my own, you know, it's, it, I think, I think those are probably the, the, the two biggest, the two biggest, if, if I get, if I get, uh, if I get, you know, good vibes from those two, I'm in pretty good shape. It's good enough. So your peers and influencers on, yeah. uh, let's say LinkedIn, on LinkedIn. Mainly yeah, LinkedIn. mainly LinkedIn and any examples you can share with us. Um, well, I don't know if, uh, if Amy Volus recommend something mm. i'm all in um if megan bowen mm-hmm. says this something's great i'm all in <laughs> um uh people like jill conrath people who've got like this 
you know, amazing uh, background, amazing, uh, uh, you know, depth of insight. You know, I, I like a lot of people. I also, you know, like a lot of people who uh, who aren't around anymore. And I kind of take a look, you know, so little is new in marketing. Like when you take a look at it from, you know, a longer term perspective, you know. And I used to really uh, love a guy named Chet Holmes. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, he doubled the sales of a bunch of Warren Buffett's uh, companies year after year after year. And, and, and Warren Buffett's uh, business partner, Charlie Munger, says, said, you know, are you doing something illegal here? You know, and basically all that, all that, or one of the things that, that, that Chet did is he, he, he was the guy who started that whole Dream 100 thing, right? That was his. And uh, basically what he would do is he had research. Oh, we're going to get, I'm going to go, I'm going, I'm going too ahead. Far That's ahead. okay. Okay. Go for but, it. Okay. So what he would do is he would, uh, he would have a client or, uh, and, you know, whoever, who, whomever his client was, what he would do is he would just research the, the, the crap out of that market. He would know as much as that, that person knew, like who he was contacting about that market. And then what he would do is he would try to get some really unique insight or some really unique spin on it. And he would come in as basically a big of an expect, he has big uh, of an expert as the person he was contacting. And he would actually have enough in his, in his back pocket to impress the hell out of that person. So what he did is he basically uh, uh, created this amazing status for himself because he did this all this research, and it was because of that that he was able to just you know beat the competition left, right, and center. He, he could take out entrenched competitors in 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 a matter of months, and um, uh, um, anyway, you know people like him, people like Jill Conrath, um, they've got these basic principles. For looking at things and you know when you go back to to basic principles uh you really see that there really isn't a whole lot that's changed even in the last say since 1980. Mm. and we'll have to touch upon some of those basic principles uh a little bit later on and, and so those are really great examples of influencers you know jill conrath and megan bowen and um chet holmes well, I've ha I have heard the name, even though I it just look at that. I've have heard the name I, as a, I just don't know who this guy is, but that's yeah. the power of this guy's reputation. Mm -hmm. um, and sounds like a wicked marketer. He had subject matter expertise and was able yep. to delight buyers. So that's fantastic. So now let's take the inverse of that question. Um, how do you not like to become aware of vendors? How do you not like to be marketed to? What causes you to turn off? and tune out at the awareness stage? Just being constantly pitched with an irrelevant message. And it doesn't even have to be irrelevant. It can just be constantly hit. Like, you know, if I was interested, I would have replied to you. Um, and that's all there is to it. Mm. It's, it's, it's just simple. I don't, I don't want to get hit with stuff that I don't care about. And then when I get hit with it over and over and over again, it's just, it's just aggravating. Especially when you've got twenty or thirty or forty people doing it, man, I can't, I can't, I can't, and some of them you can't even unsubscribe from, which is which really kind of pisses me off. They will always find you, Dan. They will uh, find you, you know. Um, <laughs> and if you're wondering why he said a boot, it is because he is Canadian and in Toronto, uh, which is also why he's super friendly. And so, yes, and so to to you know to Dan's point, he's being bombarded by product pitches. Um, and so let us talk about a few of the different ways that that can manifest itself, Dan. So first and foremost, how do you feel about telemarketing? 
I don't like it at all. I, 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 I mean, I don't even, I don't, you know, I, I literally don't pick up my landline anymore. I mean, you know, they've got, you know, they can show my area code. It can not sound like a long distance call. I literally don't pick it up. And, and at the end of every day, I've at least got 30 voicemails. Wow. Holy Maybe smokes. not at least, but, but, you know, 20 to 40 on a, on a, on a, on an average day. The, you know, the problem is I've had the same landline, um, mm. for my other business and it's been around for a long time. <laughs> yeah. You're in everyone's, uh, database. So yeah. now how do you feel about, uh, you know, email spam? How do you feel about all the product pitches and requests to speak to sales in your inbox? Yeah, I'm not crazy about those either. And, you know, one of the, like, I'm always happy to learn about something new or something innovative, um, something creative, but I keep, but it, there's so many pitches for the same type of, the, I get so many pitches for the same basic type of product. There's, they don't have any uh, unique point of view. They don't have any, they're not solving a problem that somebody else isn't solving, even in, in the most nuanced way, you know, in any big market, you know, any decent marketer is going to find some somewhere where they're exceptional or focus on one part where they can at least do it better or articulate that he can do it better than someone else. And I just think these, the people who are doing email marketing are really pretty lazy. I mean, there's some, I've seen some great emails, but nine out of 10 of them, you know, they just suck. Quite mm-hmm. frankly. Definitely. And if you're going to have to send a bajillion emails to let, get a demo, let alone get someone to buy, it's going to be really difficult to Chet Holmes that and do a, a good marketing job. And so- 100%. Um, now let's talk about LinkedIn. So you're very active on LinkedIn and, yep. you know, doing good content and social media marketing. And that's how I heard about you, right? We talked about pre-show. Um, and so how do you feel about all the LinkedIn spam that you get all the LinkedIn direct messages, same, same thing as email, you know, product pitches, requests, speak to sales. Yeah, it's, it's exactly the same thing. Um, I basically, I hate to say it, but a lot of them, I just delete without even looking at them anymore because, I'm easy to contact. You know, you can you can reach out to me as a connection. If it looks like you're doing something interesting, I don't need a message or anything. I'll say yes, you know. Um, so, I don't know. It's just, I like to be polite. I like to always give someone a response. You know, they took the time to do this, but it's just overwhelming. So, it's just like, I don't have the time. I just go through, is it somebody I know if I don't know them? It's just like mm. it's just like old email stuff, right? What's the first thing you look at? You look at the at the at the sender, right? That's your first test. Then the then the subject line is the same thing with uh, with email. Yeah, and nowadays with with all the filters, it's uh, you know a lot of that stuff isn't even getting through at the outset. Yeah. Um, and so now, what would you say it, the percentage of the time? Like, if you look at the vendors that you've bought, you know, historically, um, what percentage of vendors have you bought because of you know, this type of spam that you tune out and turn off of because of telemarketing, email spam, LinkedIn spam versus um, the type of marketing that you uh, appreciate um, and, and like, which is peers, your uh, influencers on LinkedIn and maybe communities and word of mouth and things like that. So if you think about all the vendors you have bought um, from, um, can you, you know what sort of percentage or how many you um where they come from between those two types of marketing approaches, you know, either proper marketing versus spam. I would, 
you know, I want to say it's 90-10, but I'm, I'm trying to think of that 10%. I can't even think of that, you know? <laughs> he's trying to be generous so, as a Canadian, and he's having difficulty, <laughs> you know? I mean, the last time the last time I bought from someone from a cold email was probably like 2011. I mean, just because this guy knew an exact the exact problem I was having. He could see it, and he could say, we've got a solution for you. And I uh, I took the call. And uh, we bought his product and we were with him for like five years. So yeah. Um, okay. 99, one, <laughs> 99, one. And so I guess, um, so that was the historical, uh, you know, efficacy of those two approaches on your, on your actual buying results. Now, uh, you know, for, so for your buying press preferences um, for how you like to become aware of vendors, I'm assuming that that preference for how you like to be marketed to, to become aware of vendors does that remain the same? Is it 99% proper marketing versus 1% spam? <laughs> I guess so. You know, like you're making me think, why would I even, I'm not even responding <laughs> to spam. So why would I, why, why would I say that? I mean, you know, I just take, I just kind of think of a few of the last products I bought and, you know, I, I, I mean, when I got the script, it was because of, of people on LinkedIn. When I got shield, it was because of people on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, me too. that's where the, yeah, that's where the awareness comes from. Yeah. So, so I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll put you at 99% unless you want to change that to a hundred, uh, as this, uh, as this podcast goes on, we'll see. Put uh, me at 99.8 just to give me a tiny okay. bit of wiggle room. 99.8. That's good. That's like the, uh, that's like the, um, you know, the healthcare, uh, or finance number you want to do. You got you got to give yourself a little bit of leeway yeah, for liability. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, all right, now let's pivot. Um, now, once you become aware of vendors, let's talk about your research and learning phase. Um, okay. And so how do you then like to learn about vendors? Where do you, like, who do you seek out for information? Um, where do you go for that information? What information do you seek out? And so, for example, this could be, again, your peers and influencers and in communities and LinkedIn, um, and then also the website. And on the website, you know, what's important to you, what the product is, use cases and benefits and to be able to try the product to see pricing and things like that go for it yeah so after i become aware of a aware of something like say from an influencer or from uh some uh, post on linkedin from someone who i respect i go directly to the website um i want i want to understand what it is in two minutes like if they've got like a that's why the script came to came to uh front of mind they had a fantastic video. They gave you a really good idea of what it could do. It was entertaining, uh, which, you know, obviously doesn't hurt. Um, then I want to see the pricing because like, is this thing even in the ballpark? If this thing's like 3000 bucks a month, I want to know about it, you know, um, right off the bat. Um, also, if it's like five bucks a month, I want to know, geez, am I really, do I really want to spend time looking at something, you know, that cheap? Um, yeah. So that's the first thing, uh, and then I want to dig a little bit deeper. Like maybe I'll go to YouTube. I'll get some. I'll, I'll look at some uh, videos of people who've uh, who've test drive, who did a test drive of it, or something like that. You know, just get some kind of informed opinion to see if is there something I'm missing here. Mm. You know, it's just like when you go onto Amazon, you want to buy something. Uh, it might have a four point five rating, but when you read the reviews, you find oh it's not really good in this area and this area is important to me that I might want to dig a little bit deeper. Mm. Yeah. But that's basically it. 
Right on. So, you know, you'll go after you become aware of vendors through peers and influencers, you'll go to the website. You want to know right away what it is, maybe a good explainer video um, and see pricing and maybe also go to YouTube and see some tutorials and reviews from from users, peers, um, you know, unbiased reviews, let's say, and uh, see how it works and see what they use it for. Right. Yeah. And if I, you know, and if I want to ramp Mm. up really fast, um, I might go to something like Upwork. And see, is there a community of, of, of developers who can get me up and running fast so we don't have to learn this ourselves, or we don't have to hire somebody mm-hmm. right off the bat to do it? You oh, know? That's interesting. Yeah, someone else mentioned this on another podcast, which is like, uh, uh, this was actually Camille Trent, who's like, are there consultants and agencies who help with this software? Yeah. Um, because then you've got experts who've been there, done that, and can maybe help you with implementation to make sure you get the right adoption and success out of it and see time to value as fast as possible. Yep. So that's cool. Um, now, um, so, so it seems like you like to do a lot of self-educating and, uh, and research on your own, you know, be, be well-informed and go to the website and, and, and hear from peers. Now let's get a percentage split preference from you again. So what would you say is your percentage split preference for getting information um, from marketing, you know, upfront and transparently on the website and from your peers who marketing is indirectly influencing versus sales? Um, In other words, you have to speak to a seller on a demo in order to see what the product is, in order to get pricing, in order to, you know, get any social proof or something like that. Um, It's just you know, so one way to think of it is just, yeah. Um, what's the percentage split of getting information from marketing versus sales? I think it depends on the complexity of the product. So if it's something like the script, give me a good video. I'll give it to, I'll give it to somebody to, to, to work on. Mm. So that's, that's not an issue. If it's something like, um, I don't know if you're going for, you know, something like zoom info or something that's a much more considered purchase, um, I'm going to want uh, I'm going to want a demo from from Zoom Info and from like two or three others mm. um, because it's that important, you know. Mm-hmm. So assuming that um, right, so assuming that sales is needed, right, and sales is typically needed for complex products yep. that you have to tailor based on your use cases. So there's a lot of features in the product, things you need, things you don't need. Some are more important than others, and that's when you kind of need sales. Just maybe oftentimes to be like, hey. Um, here's what my use cases are. Just want to make sure I'm buying the right stuff. And, um, so in that scenario where sales is needed, right. Um, generally speaking, what would you say is your percentage split in, uh, for getting information from marketing versus sales. And another way of thinking about this is what percentage along your buying journey do you want to be before you speak to sales? Probably about 80%. I don't want to take a half an hour or 45 minutes to go through something unless I really know it's, it's worthwhile. Um, I like to consume information really fast and reduce it down to the essence of what I need. I, I need to uh, figure out if this is, if I want to find, I, I really want to find the, the weak spots or the spots where it's not going to help me. Uh, versus where it's going to help me. I try to really get a, uh, a really good high ratio. So if if a product can do eight of 10 things, that's pretty good. If it can do five out of 10 that I need, uh, not so good. It's got to really excel in something, in, at one of those things that's really important. So, you know, one of the, one of the big reasons I'd like to talk to, uh, you know, to get a demo is to find out 
really deep down, will this deliver what it needs to deliver? You know, and sometimes you just can't get that off of a website. Like um, years ago, I was buying a product uh, called Infusionsoft. I think it's called Keep now. And I wanted, and it was unclear whether or not I had to get two licenses, one for Canadian dollars and one for U.S. dollars. Um, and, uh, you know, so I got the demo and then turned out I didn't learn anything, anything new. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But the point is that, you know, sometimes you really need somebody who really deeply understands the product to know if it'll, if, if it's what I need. Right on. And so to the best of marketing's ability, right, you, you want to be able to put all the information that a buyer needs uh, on the website, which is in a sense is a 24 seven marketer and seller and the best a yep. company can have. But um, sometimes buyers want and need uh, sales, you know, com- complex products, maybe the, the pricing it because it's a complex product, the pricing is very complex to nuanced, and maybe marketing isn't doing as good of a job as it could and should on the website to communicate the information. It's like a little bit unclear. Um, then buyers want, maybe want to double check and confirm and get that clarification from sales. Um, and so um, now let's now that we're on the topic of sales. Um, so let's pivot from your marketing preferences to your sales preferences. So um, when you do engage sales, when you do need sales as help, do you prefer a single seller and no handoffs? In other words, an AE CSM combined, um, where the same seller that helps you pre-sale also helps you post-sale with um, implementation, adoption, and success? Or do you prefer um, you know, uh, multiple sellers and buyer handoffs? So you can think of it as the AE CSM split, otherwise known as the sales assembly line. Um, and maybe, uh, you can provide some colors to why you prefer it one way or the or another. Yeah. I prefer one point of contact. Um, they, you know, you just spent a half an hour with someone and they, they pass you over and their, their, their notes aren't complete. There's all kinds of nuance missing. And then you're basically having another 15 minutes getting them caught up. Or saying no, that's not exactly what I'm looking for. So, no, it's got to be one person, one person who uh, who knows how to listen, who knows how to engage, who knows how to, well, not even knows how to, who actually is really upfront and honest. You know, I would really want to know: Am I a good fit for your company, or am I not? Like, why get me to just churn me three months later? So mm. that's that's a, that's a big deal, and that's that's why I. I just love going to my peers because they've been through this before and that can get rid of a lot of that crap. But to answer your question, I want to talk with one person, one highly qualified person. Like when I'm buying something that's, uh, you know, uh, you know, more, a more considered purchase, the first thing I ask is, who's your top rep? Who's your top AE? Can I talk mm-hmm. to them? That's who I want to talk to. Sorry, Dan, we have a complex lead routing process, so we're just going to stick you with whoever and uh, uh, and then this whole sales assembly line. But no, so to your, to Dan's point, right, he wants a full efficacious and uh, seller that is an expert um, and, uh, you know, really knows more than he does. Um, and so otherwise, what do you need the seller for? And so um, and also he's just spent, you know, he if he's going to invest in building a relationship with a seller and likability and trust and credibility. Um, and he's sharing all this information with the seller and the seller is helping him. He does. He then doesn't want that seller to disappear and chuck him over the fence to some other seller. 
And then he's got to start from scratch and this other seller is not accountable to their promises. And so um, then that leaves the the buyer maybe wondering and uh, wary of sales, which is one reason among many that buyers prefer to hear from their trusted peers I, in, um, than it is for sales. Now, that's always, I think, the case, but I think it's particularly because sales is the way that it is nowadays that buyers um, particularly don't trust and are wary of sellers. And so now let's pivot from, well, one more question on your sales preferences. So um, do you prefer a seller whose compensation depends on your decision to purchase? In other words, do you prefer a seller that um, is compensated with commission or a seller that receives a full OTE salary plus bonus? at the outset, fully guaranteed, regardless of whether or not you purchase. Um, And so one way to think about commission or the way I conceptualize and communicate about it is uh, commission is 50% of a seller's salary withheld pending their quota attainment. To the extent that they exceed their quota is their uncapped commission. Um, So that's that's the amount they get beyond their full salary. Whereas the full salary plus bonus is, well, they get the full salary plus bonus. They get the whole cake and the icing as opposed to half the cake, um, which is what your commission is. Um, and maybe some icing to the extent that you do uncapped commission or have uncapped commission. Now, suppose you were aware of this on the website before you engage sales, that our sellers are either non-commissioned and paid a full salary plus bonus or they're commissioned. Um, now, uh, looking back at your experience with sellers and the knowledge, any knowledge you have about commission versus non-commission, do you have a, or what is your preference either way? And maybe you can provide some colors why that might be as a buyer. I think it depends on the feel I get for the organization uh, from what people say. Um, I really don't care if they're commissioned or not. I actually kind of prefer commissioned because because if you're a really like when I, uh, you know, before I, before I did this, I, I, uh, I was in brokerage mm. and the, and the, the, the most successful people I knew were the ones who really, really played, who played the long game and really took care of their clients well. And because they were so good, they wanted to work more on commission because that's how they were going to get rewarded the best. Um, but you don't always know that going, going in. So, you know, I don't want people to go and shove something down my throat that I don't need. Because like I said, I just, I'll just churn. So, you know, I hate to give you an it depends answer, but it really does depend. I, you know. Can put you down as neutral. And so I think what there's to the point that Dan has made here, on the one hand, as a buyer, it's like you're a bit wary because you don't know if you're going to be pressure sold and sold um, a lemon or sold or be under promise and over, well, over promise and under delivered or um, something to that effect. But at the same time, from his experience at a brokerage, um, was that Fidelity or what was the what was the brokerage, by the way? Um, well, it was uh, one of them was Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch, yeah. So I know Charles Schwab, for example, has uh, gone rid of commission, and yeah. I think some other brokerages have gone the same route. And so um, part of that is for the buyer's experience, but also what people are realizing, I think, is it's for sales as well because. Um, a seller um, who can deliver the best buying experience is a seller who's paid um, fully guaranteed pay, their full OTE salary plus bonus. They don't have to worry about their paycheck. It's irrelevant regardless of whether the buyer decides to buy. And just like any other department, 
um, the better you are, the higher your salary and bonus. And the bonus is the ice and the bonus is based on your, like the incentive pay on your, and so people sometimes can, I'm trying to help people understand the difference between a commission and a bonus. I think they often get conflated. And so I think there's, um, so I think that, um, if, if one really to, were to understand the true nature of commission as more sellers kind of wake up to this, more VP of sales wake up to this, and there are B2B companies that are waking up to this, money.com, microchip technology, Backblaze, Legion Logistics, Culture Amp, Pluralsight, um, you know, um, uh, Bravado, um, Refined Labs, a bunch of others who I'm aware of, at least that I'm aware of. Um, there's a whole, many, a whole bunch that I'm not aware of who have ditched commission and embraced full salary plus bonus. And they're seeing the light of that. So I'm hoping more companies do share that. Um, now, taking off your B2B buyer flip-flops and putting on your B2B marketing hat, and you've also been a founder and also have a sales background. So, um, well, one, one question is, um, have you ever asked your buyers um, in an interview format like this, similar questions to ascertain how they heard about your company, how they learned about your company, how they like to be marketed to and don't like to be marketed to. Have you ever done that in an interview style um, and gotten their preferences like that to inform your marketing efforts and sales efforts? Um, not really. I mean, not, not at the outset. Um, like when I uh, start a company, what I try to do is I, I try to find the, the shortest path to long-term revenue. And so I, I do a lot of, of outreach. I do a lot of talking to people. I, I try to get a, a, as much of an understanding as possible before I go out. So I have those questions uh, answered for my ICP before I go out. Uh, that said, I also go out blind sometimes. When, like when I started my last business, um, it, it all started with cold calling. I had a value proposition. It was just me and one other person. And, you know, I, I did probably 400 cold calls. I got IBM small business. They became a client. And then that led into, I, then I, I got, you know, IBM Nordic, IBM Software Premier Club. And then I, when I started getting in, I wonder, why did you refer me within the company? Like, what, what did I say? What did I do? What kind of value did I offer? Um, and then when I went to other companies, I would get um, references from them. And that's how, that's how we, we grew and grew. Um, and then it, it got to the point where we found, wow, this is, this is our ICP. Like we found our, our real ICP after doing that for a couple of years. Um, and then uh, we just exploded. So I don't, did I answer your question? Yeah. And so um, one way to think about this um, for young companies, when you're doing, um, let's say, product marketing and you're, you're trying to establish product market fit, what you're also trying to do is you're trying to establish your uh, marketing and, and who your audience is and what your positioning and messaging is and what your tactics should be and which channels and everything like that and uh, how, how your buyers prefer to be marketed to and sold to. And so part of it is you're doing that um, as you are, are going through that and figuring that as you're speaking to them and as you bring on customers and who are your happy customers. And, um, and so uh, I think that's, yeah, that that's, it, it's part of that process. And that's something that people should, I think as, as part of going through their product market interviews or, 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 or as they're, you know, really building their company and they're, and they bring on customers 
the, you know, that's something that the founder and then eventually when they bring on a marketer really should be trying to um, check in and just be speaking to the buyers in this interview type of style to ask them these questions and not just asking this or, or some questions on a demo request form or just listening to sales calls. But yeah, the same reason that product teams have user interviews is the same thing, same reason, same purpose that marketing should do the same. So now what type of marketing are you up to these days as part of Winback? Um, so you started out back in the day doing maybe some telemarketing. You, you, you just you talked a little bit about that. Um, I know of you because you're very active on LinkedIn and uh, the, your LinkedIn posts and you have a podcast, uh, the Winback podcast. Maybe you can talk about, um, you know, what's the successful marketing that you're doing uh, today? Um, go ahead. Sure. So how you market, in my opinion, it depends on your, your, uh, your value proposition. The company I was talking about before, we had a tremendous value proposition. Um, so that was very easy with Winback. Most people don't do Winback. Most people don't understand the value of Winback. Um, so what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to educate the market. So that's why I'm, I'm doing fairly, uh, deep, deep and lengthy, uh, uh, posts. You know, you can just take a look at my last 15 posts and you get a really good idea of why Winback works. Um, and I also try to insert some credibility into it. So what I'll, what I'll do is say, um, uh, well, here's one thing. So when you win back a lost customer, they generate so much revenue that, um, that lifetime value more than doubles. Well, who the hell's going to believe that, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty out there. Um, so what I do is I say that um, a study of 40,000 lost customers in the Harvard Business Review found the same thing. And then um, I also did a study to get, you know, to, 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 to get data. And so what I did is I talked to CROs, CMOs, uh, founders, um, and I got numbers from them, right? So I found out what the, what the, what the ROI was for them. I knew the very first time I did win back, I got a 57 X ROI. I'd never made that much money that fast, uh, in anything I'd done in marketing, you know, it was crazy. So was I, was this an outlier for me? I serve, I guess I've probably had 150 people um, in, go through the study uh, so far. And I find that typically it's eight, 32x to 182x. A lot of people are going to call bullshit on that, right? I mean, that, that's not possible. But because I've got third-party data, because I've got a study, I can educate people in, in, a, in a credible way. And, and the other thing is, is that I'm really passionate about this. I mean, if I wasn't passionate about, about Winback and, and, and showing people the, the value that's lying dormant in their lost customers, I could never do this, right? Because it's a hell of a lot of work educating a market. Um, and on the flip side, so what I try to do with the, with the LinkedIn uh, posts is I try to educate the market, like open their mind, just like, oh, maybe there is something here. And then on the podcast, I get... I get uh, I talk to people to get stories of how their peers have done it, right? So like the very first person that came on, we talked about in the pre-show, Megan Bowen. She came on at the very beginning. You know, Jill Conrath came on. You know, Deb Calvert, Scott, Scott McGregor, Josh Wagner. I saw your interview <laughs> with him. That was a great interview. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Josh, uh, you know, he's got a, a great win back motion. So, so anyway, I, I put out 
I put out information. I try to put out solid data. And if you don't believe me, will you believe Harvard Business Review? Or will you believe a study? And then that's just facts. But let's tell some stories. Let's tell some success stories. Let's show this, you know, really coming to life. And so, so that's what I'm doing. It's a, it's a long slog because there's people who already know WinBack. They've been using it for years and they're converted. But to get this into the general market and to have people uh, do things that they haven't, you know, that's not part of their, you know, revenue motion, it's very tough. Yeah. And so guys, you know, Dan is a champion of WinBack campaigns. In just a moment, I'm going to ask him to explain what that is, um, why it's important, um, why he's so passionate about this and the results that he's seen um, from people doing this and why people are actually sleeping on it. And maybe Dan, I'd be really curious to hear why are people sleeping on that and what, what is preventing people from actually going to do this? What are the challenges that people that, you know, um, I'd be very curious because it seems like a no-brainer. Um, but in just to just to kind of clear uh, echo some of what Dan has said here, so Dan in, in a way is a startup, right? He's trying mm-hmm. to educate a market, a, a new market, and build awareness um, in a market that isn't um, isn't really doing this play. And he he's got to have be passionate. He's got to you know like founder marketing, right? Or having subject matter expertise. He knows his stuff. And he's passionate and he's getting a lot of data, third-party data, and he's interviewing people the same way that I'm interviewing people to get their percentage split preferences for how they like to be marketed and sold to to then inform their marketing sales model. He's done that for WinBack and he's proven um, and has gone so much objective data to, to make the case that you should do it. Not, not, and it's not just hearsay because he said so. Um, and so he's done tons of content on that long form content. He's established himself as a, as a expert, as a subject matter expert. So people will, will listen to what he has to say and and keep coming back and consuming for more. So now um, Dan back over to you to establish some context, the audience about what is win back? Why is it important? um, What are the results that you've seen? um, What, why are people sleeping on it? What are the challenges that you've seen that people are having um, when they're thinking about this. Go ahead. Sure. So I think the biggest problem with WinBack is when a customer leaves, you basically think they're gone. You know, they're not coming back. Uh, You know, gone today is gone forever. Uh, They rejected me once. Why on earth would I want to go back to them? And the thing is, is that so many people, when they leave, they don't leave you. They go for something else, you know, and, 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 what I try to do is I try to lead with some numbers just to get people thinking like there's something here. You know, I don't go for the, for this logical argument. What I do is I show them, you know, if they're an SMB, for example, I'll say in our study, oh, there's over a hundred, I think there's over a hundred SMBs in it. The average win back campaign generated $485,000 for them. It cost less than 5,000 to execute. So there's a 97x ROI. And then I show them, like, the reason it costs so little is because the cost of acquisition has already been paid, right? You don't need to source leads. You don't need to qualify them. You don't need to build, pay people to build relationships. You know, you don't, you don't have to educate them. All that work has already been done. So not only does that make your sales cycles faster, it's actually three times faster. So you can close three lost customers in the time you can close one new customer. And then so people say, well, yeah, but they're not worth as much. 
right? Well, no, like we just said before, lifetime value doubles. They spend like about 120% the second time around. But but the, the, the other big thing I try to hit on is win rates because people like win rates. And the win rate for selling to a past customer is five times better than selling to a new customer. So, you know, what's the highest and best use of your time? You want to go after a one chance, uh, you know, a, a 5x chance or a 1x chance? And so, um, so then I spend a lot of time explaining why the win rate is so high. And um, I can give you a 10 sec or a 40 second overview of that, or we can, do, we can just no, 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 go for on. it. This is, I wanted to carve out enough time to let this breathe. And I think this is very important and you have this expertise here. And so please take as much time as you need. I think the audience will find this very valuable. Okay, great. So, so the win rate is high for three reasons. You've got pre-existing trust, you've got relationships and you've got knowledge. Okay. So, you know, uh, I haven't found a better way of saying this, so I'm going to have to quote Josh Wagner. But Josh says that sales is a trust game, and it really is. And when you sell to a, a former customer, there's already this existing level of trust. You know them, they know you, you know, they know that you've got a good product and, you know, you did what you say you're going to do. Like, I'm assuming, like, we're, we're good business people, okay? So there's that exist, existing level of trust. You don't have that with a new prospect. They don't know you at all, you know? There's uh, Jeb Blunt. Uh, he wrote a book called um, Fanatical Prospecting. Do you know that at all? Or Yes. Yeah, okay. So uh, Jeb has this law of familiarity. And the more someone's familiar with you, the more likely they are to take your call, the more likely they are to uh, do business with you. And in his book, he says that uh, when you reach out to a lost customer, you can engage them with one to three touches because they know you. But if you go to a cold prospect, it's something, I don't know what he said, like 30 to 40 touches, right? So anyway, sales is a trust game. You've got this, to some degree, you've got a pre-existing level of trust. And you don't have that with new prospects because they don't know you. The second thing is, um, you know, you know so much about them, right? You've done business with them before. Uh, you know, you know when they're buying, you know who the decision makers are. You know when the buying window opens. You, you know... Um, what's important to them, you know, what their, what their values are, what their bigger goals are. And because you've worked with them before and you know so much about them, you can create much more personalized messaging than you can for a prospect that you've never met before, where you've just got, you know, data from like Zoom info or something. Mm. And you can also create much more tailored mark uh, offers for those people, right? So we've got the trust and we've got this additional knowledge. And the third thing about um, past customers is they'll actually tell you exactly what it takes to win them back. You know, um, Jill Griffin did a study and she found that one in three lost customers will tell you exactly what it takes to win them back. Uh, Jill tells the story of uh, she lost uh, uh, their biggest account. It was a Honda account. And she sent her uh, top sales rep out to find out what it would take to win the business back. Honda told them exactly what it would take. Three months later, Jill's team made all those changes. Uh, Honda took a look at what they did. A week later, they won the business back. And, and what was amazing is that this business, I mean, th th this, 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 this company, they could have chosen Jill's company. They could have chosen like 50 other vendors, but they chose her because they had this pre-existing, because 
they had this pre-existing level of trust. They had relationships with them, and um, th they knew exactly what was needed. No outside company knew that. So um, those are three big reasons why the win rate is so high. And um, and we can also we can say it in another way, and that is that about 26% of your lost customers will come back. That's another way of saying it. That's what the Winback study found. About 26% come back. Um, and uh, the Harvard Business Review uh, showed 41% came back, but they knew their customers very well. So that's, that's why their number was higher. But the point is, large numbers of people will come back. And I'm just gonna say one more important thing, really important thing. When you know why people are leaving and what it'll take to win them back, right? You've actually won them back, right? You go out, you ask them, why did you leave? What it'll take to win, win, win you back? You go and do that. Well, maybe that's maybe they're telling you the truth. Maybe they weren't. You don't know until you go out and put offers in front of them, message them, you know, promote this. You don't know what works and what doesn't. But by the end of a win back campaign, you'll know why people are leaving and what it'll take to win them back. And you can take that knowledge and you can apply that to your retention protocols. So, you know, customer uh, um, success, they talk to current customers and what, what, how can, what can we do to retain you? By and large, there aren't people in customer success tasked with finding out why people had left. At least that's my experience. And so, when you find out why people left, this is what you're missing. This is why this is why people are going. And when you find that out, um, you can increase retention rates significantly. Um, one gentleman I interviewed, he he increased retention seventeen percent. Seventeen percent. It was massive. So this is a big deal. Um, you know that was an outlier. You know most of the time it's like two to five percent. But if you can increase um, uh, retention by 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 two percent, that's a big win. So can you explain why that is in a SaaS business, why it's so important for a company to uh, expand and retain existing customers and maybe just flesh that out a little bit? Sure. So, so say you, uh, say you're a, uh, say your CAC is $200 and say your pay, your, you know, CAC payback is, is a year. Okay. So you don't make money until that customer stayed for a year, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. So, so when they leave, let's just say they leave and you break even. Mm -hmm. So they leave on day three sixty five. Mm. So, so you broke even. Now you go back, you go back. Let's just say you've got a hundred of those people. Okay, I'm just trying to do, make it the, the math easy. One in four of them come back. So when they come back, they this is a considered purchase now, right? They've seen you. They probably left to, to try the competition. Uh, they found that they were better th better with you, or you made a change to your product based on your winback campaign that gave them something that they wanted that the customer that the that the competitor offered, and you just you know upped it. So now you've got this phenomenally amazing CAC payback because the cost to a, to reacquire that customer is is probably email or phone outreach. Right, because you've already acquired them. You've got the you've got the relationship. You've got everything, right? And and this is what we find so often is that you reach out, and 
the, you know, it might, it might cost you, you know, 50 bucks as opposed to $200 to win that customer back. So now your pay, your CAC payback is like three months. And actually, most of the time when I see this, the CAC payback is less than a month. So you got this CAC pay, payback of 12 mm. months. Now you've got it to, to one month. Wow. That's amazing. And, yeah. And that's why it's so important because you're already doing the, the 12, right? You, you, and, and you're losing them after 12. You know, hopefully you're losing them after 18. But mm. get the point. And are you seeing common path like what are the common reasons that a customer churns and then what are the common reasons that they come back well you know it really depends but i'll give you just one one bigger example uh customer service you know let's mm-hmm. just say it's customer service or yeah let's just say it's customer service it'll this will be faster so if there's a customer service issue they were promised something and they didn't get it or uh Sales said, we'll, we'll give you this, but you didn't get it. And it was something, something that's definitely fixable. If you can reach out to that customer who, who just churned and ask them, empathetically ask them, why did you leave? A lot of them will tell you. And if you find that there's one particular group that isn't servicing your customers properly, you'll be able to identify that problem and fix it. Um, so that's a very simple example, and I'll just show you how important that is and why that's it's really, a, really cool. Marriott Hotels did this study, and what they found was that people who had a good experience with their company, their chances of coming back were 89%. 89% of the people said they'd definitely come back. But people who had a problem during their stay that Marriott fixed, 94% would come back. And... And this is what's so huge about this whole thing is that when you reach out and you, you there's a problem, they churn, they churn for a reason. You find out what that reason is, you ask them what it was, and you fix it. The chances of them coming back are phenomenal. And not only, they're not phenomenal, they're, they're very good. But what's really amazing is you've just, you also negate negative word of mouth. Like, mm. say... Say um, I leave because you promised me something or I had a terrible customer experience. What am I going to do? I'm at my, I'm pissed now. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm talking about it. I'm on Slack. I'm talking about it. But, and, and, and what does that do when you've got this terrible word of mouth? I mean, word of mouth just drives so much in B2B sales, right? So, so what we do is we, when we reach out, we say, we're sorry. How can we fix this? What do we do wrong? They show you, that shows you care. That's going to mitigate so much negative word of mouth. And what's really amazing is that a lot of these people will turn around and actually become your advocates. Um, I mentioned that Megan Bowen um, was on my uh, uh, first episode. She took an unhappy customer, showed empathy, fixed the problem, and that unhappy, angry customer turned into one of their most loyal customers who actually referred more business to them, a lot more business and, and actually became an advocate. That's the power of this. When you, she says, she's got this great line. She says something like relationships are strengthened through adversity. So when somebody leaves, you've got these, all these amazing opportunities to really um, 
increase your lifetime value and your CAC LTV. What's your CAC LTV when, you're, when, you're, when your CAC is so low and your lifetime value just doubled? I mean, the, the, the numbers are nuts. This is great. So a lot of, you know, this is a great example of proper modern non-spam marketing of low-hanging fruit for marketers. Um, you know, you've, you've worked so hard to acquire these customers. They know, like, know and like you and maybe there was a, something happened with the account for one reason or another, maybe they had a bad customer service issue, whatnot. Um, and they decide to go elsewhere and take their business elsewhere. Um, but, and again, not every customer that leaves is one you want to keep, right? Sometimes you bring on a lemon and it's their fault, right? You know, not every relationship is, is your fault. It could be the other person, but if you, you know, you should be trying to, um, you know, win back these customers, uh, because the juice is worth the squeeze. And, a, a large subset of them will come back and you prevent negative word of mouth and you, you know, if they had a bad experience um, and it wasn't just, you know, something like a, you know, a, we're going through a difficult financial time. We had to retrench on our investment, uh, but we'll pick things up in the future. One, once business picks up, maybe it was a bad customer service problem. But the other thing is you have a lot of positive word of mouth and a lot of, you know, you just won back a ha- Now you have another happy customer and they're more likely to, buy faster and buy again and, and spend more and, and be a, a, you know, as he says, adversity strengthens relationships. So it's like, you know how it is when, when let's say, let's say it was your fault or a company, um, you know, uh, made a mistake and you took your business elsewhere or someone makes a mistake and they generally repent and, um, make amends for it and then come back stronger. It's like, that's great. Like, I really appreciate that customer service and you've won my business back. And now I know that like we can weather the storm together. It's like a relationship in a couple. If you think a marriage is all sunshine and rainbows, that's not going to be a real marriage. It's like a marriage is like you kind of weather the storm together. You're kind of ripping each other's eyes out, but you, but you become stronger for it. And it's friendships. It's the same way. And business is the same way too. It's like, you know, as your company grows and everything like that, your product has to change and all that type of stuff, there will be bumps in the road during that relationship. So Dan, why, um, why aren't more people doing this? What are you, uh, what challenges do you have as you're educating the market? Um, why aren't more people doing this and, um, w- how are you helping them? Like, what are you, um, what are you guys up to there to help them run these campaigns? Well, I think that people don't do win back because it's not part of the company culture. That's one reason. So, you know, when the company was being built, it was all about, you know, net new logos, net new mm. logos. And so, you know, you, you hire salespeople to do that. And that becomes the, basically the revenue playbook. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, if you're going out for funding, mm. you know, the CEO is going to be asked by the VC or the PE people, you know, how many net new logos did you get last month? You know, that's what the, that's what the PE, that's what PE and VC people want. And when they want that, that's, that's what the CEO wants. If that's what the CEO wants, they're going to get a, you know, uh, a CRO that, that 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 gets that for them. So there's there's a lot of reasons uh, for that for it. Um, the way I'm trying to combat it is on two fronts. One with a, a study of actual of CROs and CEOs and founders who've done it and showing their their great uh, results in a in a d- data form, and then having stories like from Megan and and, and Josh about how it works in the real world. Uh, so when you've got a story plus data. Uh, that's how I'm trying to, you know, educate uh, people who don't know about WinBack. That's great. And I'd also add to that. So um, there is among, I think, some 
uh, ownership and some investors, this um, malin- malinvestment in top line revenue uh, and net new logos as an as the indicator and the only indicator of a company's profit and growth um, and their potential for for continued growth and profit. That is not the case. Um, you have to look at a holistic suite of goals and metrics to analyze a company's profit and growth. And in a SaaS business, because it's a reoccurring subscription business and most of the profits and growth come after the initial sale and expansion and retention, that the metrics that actually matter um, are not only uh, revenue on the initial sale, um, but retention and expansion and um, reoccurring revenue and win rate and sales cycle and cost per acquisition and cost per acquisition payback period and customer lifetime value and customer health and customer satisfaction. So if you are an investor and you are an owner of a company and you're not looking at those metrics, then you're a fly-by-nighter. And um, in bad economic times, like the one that we're in a little bit in the recession, then um you're going to start feeling, you're going to start noticing that pain more that was there the whole entire time, but you weren't looking at it. And so, um, yeah, um, companies need to pay more attention to the real goals and metrics that actually matter. And so if you're a CMO or you're a CRO, um, you need to help ownership understand that because ownership may not, or, uh, and that the investors in the company also may not be good investors. Um, and they, even though they're paying the the piper to play the tune, they may not, they might be calling the wrong shots. And so it's your job to educate them. And if you're not, and if, you know, they don't listen, then maybe consider taking your talents elsewhere for a better return. Um, but if they're, you know, it's your job as a marketing leader to call the right shots, regardless of if ownership doesn't know better or investors don't know better. And so show them better. And so um, with that, Dan, um, maybe we'll close out parting thoughts and then closing thoughts. And then maybe you can share with folks how they can find you. Sure. So um, you can find me uh, the best place. The best place to find me is on LinkedIn, Dan M. Fister Um, and uh, tons of stuff there. I just, there's everything you need to know about why to do win back is there. Uh, If you go to the, the marketing win back podcast, you get all kinds of stories how you can do this yourself. Lots of inspirational stories. Um, and yeah, those are the two places to, uh, to start. And if, uh, if it looks like you'd you know, like some help with WinBack, I've got the, my program and pricing outlined in detail uh, on the website, winbacklabs.com. And if you want to reach out to me directly, dan at winbacklabs.com. For this company, I answer all my emails. That's awesome. Well, and we'll have to get Dan in the uh, partner network in the buyer central gravity mall community, which I need to get cracking on that. Um, and I think you'll be a very valuable resource for people who are looking to do proper, modern, non-spam marketing. And so thank you, Dan, so much for coming on the show, for sharing your insights with the audience and this, you know, the amazing tactic and strategy that people are just sleeping on and um, losing out on. And so keep up the the great work on your end in a way we are both um, entrepreneurs and trying to uh, do startup founder marketing and try to educate uh, a, a whole market, which as you say, you have to be very passionate about. And it takes a lot of blood, sweat and tears to help people become aware of uh, this stuff and, and when they're not doing it or not aware of it. So 
yeah um it's been great chatting with you and hope to collaborate in the future and with that buyer-centric revenue model over and out take care nelson thanks for having me